the problem is that, you know, when I talk to a developer, he tells me, well, this is what the land costs and that the land has gone through the roof. The, I mean, the cost of land, if you look at the last 15 years, cost of land has escalated way faster than any either material or labor costs. Yeah. But he just assumes that's a fixed cost. The cost of the soft costs, the, architect, the architectural engineering costs, that's a fixed cost. You just pay what you pay. Uh, and the materials costs are he may not be happy about the volatility, but he pays what he pays. Ah, the labor costs, maybe I can save there. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe if I use a uh, flooring company that everybody's an independent contractor and everybody gets paid cash, well, you know, mm-hmm. th- th- that's how I'll make up for all the other costs that I can't control. Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 77 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And joining us today is our guest, Mark Ehrlich. Mark is with the New England Carpenters Union, also now Harvard, the university you may have heard of in Boston. Just a little one. Why don't we start with the Carpenters <laughs> Union, Mark? You, you have a very long tenure, NERC. Can you tell us sort of how you got started in the union and maybe go back to the beginning a little bit? Okay, so just to correct the record, yeah, I, I'm actually retired from the union in two, oh. 2017, and uh, which which has now become the New England Regional Council of Carpenters has become the North Atlantic States uh, Regional Council of Carpenters because now it includes up, upstate New York as well as the six states of New England. My personal trajectory is I joined the Carpenters Union in 1975. I worked as an apprentice. I became a journeyman became a foreman, superintendent, and then ran for office in 92. I, I was the head of Carpenters Local 40 for a number of years. And then when the regional councils were formed in the late 90s, I uh, went to work for the regional council. We covered all six states. And then in 2005, I ran for the head of the council. The title, for whatever it's worth, is executive secretary treasurer. Um, and I won the election and I held that position for 12 years from 2005 to 2017 when I retired. And I am now a fellow at the Harvard Labor and Work-Life Program. It's wonderful. Being the executive secretary treasurer is much like uh, being the CEO of a large organization, I'd imagine. How many guys sort of were in the organization when you were running it? Guys and gals. And gals, forgive uh, me, yes. <laughs> folks. Let's, uh, let's be woke here. For sure. Um, about 24,000. Uh, and you are right that it is like running, being the CEO of a large organization because there were about 100 people on staff. Uh, we also had a multi-billion dollar pension annuity fund and a very complex and sophisticated training program. So there, the organization had multiple facets. And yes, it was, um, uh, it was uh, like running a large corporation. I was involved in a large project actually in Connecticut uh, at a school I worked for Suffolk for a number of years. And the project was uh, one of the largest residential buildings ever done. And it was 100% union. And um, one, one of the reasons, the largest funding source was the uh, one of the union's labor uh, retirement funds. Yeah. So only only made sense. Is that fairly typical? A place where you might look to invest those billion dollars of retirement monies into real estate and reemploy the men and women? Yeah, so there's a uh, typical portfolio of equities and fixed income uh, that, the, that the pension funds are invested in, but we have a probably larger than usual uh, allocation to real estate. Given the industry we come from, it only makes sense. And we always have pr- uh, provisos in our investments that if some investor is gonna use the money 
uh, to build it, it be built on a union basis. I mean, there's, it makes no sense for the members' money to be funding yeah. an non-union project. So I wouldn't say that it was common, but it was, I mean, it was always happening somewhere or another. But again, the, you know, the, the overall allocation of real estate for, for purposes of fiduciary responsibility, you had to be diverse, geographically diverse and blah, blah, blah. So mm -hmm. it's not like all of that money was dedicated to union projects in New England. Yeah. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Yes. Yeah. Makes sense. We invest in a lot of real estate things outside of our own developments. So it's like you, you, you invest in what you know. So yeah. it's yeah. perfect. Makes perfect sense. Can you walk us through the 07, 09 era, kind of when everything sort of paused, the world was was falling apart. And if we've, if we're still going through and experiencing the ramifications of that fallout, if you will. So for example, a lot of people leaving the trades and just going into different industries because it took so long for things to recover versus where they're at now, where we have such a shortage of, of labor. You know, it was officially called the Great Recession. It was not a recession in construction. It was a depression. The level of unemployment nationwide during the, I think hit 27% in the construction industry, which is higher than the peak unemployment during the Great Depression in the 30s. I mean, uh, there was hardly anyone who was untouched by it. It was, uh, it just, it just, uh, the industry just fell off a cliff. I mean, I remember, you know, very vividly the, the Turner project over and near the Harvard Business School, they were building a, uh, I think a, they were building labs and they just, the fact they were just bringing it out of the ground. And here was this huge project that was going to employ all these people and it just stopped dead in the water. And then they just covered it and it just sat there for years. And so many projects were like that. It was really depressing. It was incredibly stressful for our members. Um, you know, one of the things you do as a union leader is in addition to dealing with the industry, in addition to trying to find jobs, you spend a lot of time kind of as a social worker talking to members who are going through hard times. Well, <laughs> there wasn't anyone who wasn't going through a hard time. You know, I, guys would come up to me and say, there's only so many fix it projects I have at the house. I've done them all. You know, the highlight of the day is when I walk to the mailbox after the mailman has come to visit. You know, they, they just were in addition to being economically insecure, it was emotionally and psychologically insecure. If you're used to working with your hands or used to going to work every day and starting at seven and putting in a full day's work, not having that as an opportunity is deeply troubling. And there are a lot of folks who, uh, who as you said, uh, left the industry because they simply couldn't wait uh, long enough to, to re recover. Some of them came back, some of them didn't. And now we've had a relatively steady boom since the recession ended. It, you know, the nice thing about it is it hasn't been volatile. It's been relatively even and, and continuous. And um, I don't actually think there's as much of a labor shortage as, uh, as many people. We can, have, we can have a conversation about why I think that. But um, there is certainly the case that now people have been working relatively steadily. And there are people who came into the union after the recession I think that's what the world is like. You just go to work and it's, yeah. and it's a bowl of cherries and it doesn't ever stop. <laughs> uh, so if there's a real generational divide between those who experienced that recession and those who came after in terms of their understanding of how the industry works in terms of cycles and boom, booms and busts. Sure. So leading into that previous statement that you made, so do you think there's enough new blood coming into the workforce to support the future growth? of, you know, the building in, I guess, in Boston and kind of New England? Yes. 
you know, you, you read the industry press and there's all a hue and cry about labor shortages. And uh, my feeling is that over the past, say, 40, 50 years, that the industry has become bifurcated, segmented. It used to be back in the, um, you know, through the 60s for almost a century, for the 20th century, it was um, a union industry. Probably 80% of the work was done on a union basis, including a lot of residential that changed. Uh, there was a concerted attack on building trades unions, sort of the canary in the coal mine for a larger attack on the labor movement. Now you have uh, large parts of the country where the work is non-union. If you drill down to the people who are complaining about labor shortages, it tends to be in the areas where the compensation has been reduced dramatically. When the carpenters union or any other trade around here opens its doors for apprentices, we have no shortage of applicants. No shortage. People want to be uh, apprentices because they know they have heard and they know and they find out they have friends that however it is that they learn about it that it's a career that offers an opportunity to uh, uh, as the saying goes climb out of poverty into the middle class uh, that's what the billing trades have long long represented and they continue to do so in the areas where the unions are strong in the areas where the unions have become weakened say south of the mason dixon line throughout the south southwest rocky mountain states and in rural communities it's a very different story. The compensation is is much lower. There are few of any benefits. Um, there's a lot of wage theft that goes on, and yeah, they have trouble recruiting people because it's not the, it's not the appeal of the occupation is the same as it used to be. It's interesting in those locations how the union union politics have not taken off. It's almost akin to how folks who should benefit from universal health care or perhaps more progressive policies often don't vote in, in a way that would benefit their own self-interest. But is there any logic to that or, or reason that, that you that you see? Does well, that make sense, first of all? Yeah, no, no, I totally understand. Sort of like, uh, what's the matter with Kansas? You yeah, know, or, a little bit. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that in many parts of the country that the single largest growing group of the workforce is um, undocumented immigrant workers from Mexico, Central America, and, and Latin America. And the unions, to their credit, have gone from a position of opposing and being hostile to new immigrant workers, um, now understanding that that is the future workforce in many areas. And, and they're just like everybody else who came here to this country looking for opportunities in, in construction and found it. And they're just simply the, the most current iteration or version. But a lot of them come with either sort of perceived unions as part of the larger power structure that is kind of alien and distant and hostile and actually maybe not that different from ice in, mm -hmm. in the sense of so and and the employers often take advantage of the fear of insecurity around deportation and and reprisals and so there's a reluctance to really speak out about unsafe conditions and the kind of things that would potentially drive people toward unions it's a complicated situation. It's a problem the unions themselves have to address and, and understand, and some have and some less so. But if you look at the average compensation of a construction worker from 1970 to the present, believe it or not, in real terms, it's actually gone down. It's like 15%. And that's because of that segmented nature of the industry today, which is that in, in the union areas, it's still a, a good paying well-compensated job and in other parts of the country, it's very, it's very poorly compensated. So in whole, it's gone, it's gone down, but maybe regionally and locally, it, it's kept pace. Obviously talking about, you know, comparing 
actual wages versus inflation and yeah, all that. I mean, Boston remains obviously a strong union city, and, sure. and New England in general is the standards are pretty high. Obviously, you know, we always hear about strikes or lockouts or things like that, and and it's not just relative to the trades; it's 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 any union really. You know, we've seen that struggle. Why does that happen? Why why did are there always you know either strikes or lockouts? It always seems like we're hearing about it in the news. Just the two sides can't come to an agreement. They can't get there. What are like the biggest reasons for that? Is it just saying, you know, this is what we want and damn it, we're going to get it? Or, uh, you know, is it just unrealistic from the employer side? Because we're seeing it everywhere at Kellogg's out in Worcester. The the healthcare workers have been doing that for about 300 days. I think they just, they just came to an agreement. Yep. We the saw we the national grid lockout and that one really affected that. us because when national grid locked out all of its employees, we literally couldn't hook up new gas lines for any development here and had to go to this crazy system of propane. So, I mean, wh why do these all happen? And is there a way to like ever get around that? Or is it just kind of part of the, the ebb and flow, if you will? That's a big question. <laughs> it's a loaded question. Yeah, with, a lo with a lot of elements to it. The truth is the vast majority of, of contracts and collective bargaining agreements are reached without a strike. The Boston Carpenters haven't had a strike since the 1980s. And in fact, during my tenure as the head of the New England Carpenters, we had one strike in Connecticut, which lasted a couple of weeks because frankly, we had one employer who was just digging in his heels and the rest of the employer community was afraid to buck him. So it was, um, it really doesn't happen very much. You sit down at the table, you negotiate, you come to an agreement that's, that's fair to both sides and you move on. And most of the employers that I dealt with in the course of my career are knowledgeable, sophisticated. They're not, they're not looking to punish anybody. They're not looking. They're trying to keep a lid on their costs, and I respect that. And you work out a deal. I think the reason that you hear about it is that's what the news covers. The strikes are exciting. Uh, reaching, <laughs> reaching a contract is boring, yeah. right? So, so what's in the news? Now, I will say, however, and this doesn't affect construction and real estate development, that you know they've been talking about striketober, this last year, and I think that there is there's something ha there is something that's happening during the pandemic that over the past several decades there's been a growth of as you know it's been well documented income inequality wage inequality, and I think there's an element of people just got fed up and the pandemic kind of many people just got laid off kind of arbitrarily simply because the economy was shutting down certainly the hospitality industry just mm -hmm. got decimated so all these people are just out in the street. And I think there's a fairly natural response of, huh, I thought I was going to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And here I am, you know, out in the street. And maybe there's even a rational reason for it, but it doesn't make people feel very good. So I think the sense of the great resignation and people leaving their jobs and the strikes are all a reflection of a larger societal problem, which is that I frankly don't think that this society values working people enough. And I think that what you're seeing is a wholesale response to that dynamic. I agree. I think that's a really good answer. You mentioned earlier that uh, large parts of the country where unions have sort of become weaker, New England in general has, has uh, stayed above that. New York City may be the exception, it would seem, as of late. Can you comment on that? Have you seen the same sort of a trend there whereby high-rise buildings might be erected with <clears throat> open shop labor? From a point of view of a Boston labor leader, it's shocking what has happened in New York. Yeah. Yeah. 50-story high-rise being built open shop. That really... The development community in New York in the wake of the Great Recession really tried to push back on uh, on union wages and kind of went 
became very aggressive in a way that really hadn't been seen before. Prior to the 07, 08, New York was pretty decent union city in terms of overall market share and, and strength. But there was this, this huge pushback happened afterwards. And and a number of developers decided they were going to uh, kind of challenge the the uh, strength of the unions and did, and frankly, did it relatively effectively. And I think what happens, and this has been true in many cases of the billing trades, uh, I would like to think that we were, that we learned from others' mistakes, which is there's a, if you go for long periods of time and you are, you take for granted the fact that you have a strong, you know, your job is to send people to work, to train people to run the funds and make sure everything, all the, the trains run on time. And you forget about organizing and you forget about growth and you forget about inclusion. And then what happens is when the, when, uh, develop, the owner developer community decides to sort of take that on, a sense of complacency is settled in. And I think in New York, that was very much the case, which was the unions weren't prepared to really deal with an overt attack because they hadn't faced it in so many years. Frankly, I think now the chickens are a little bit coming home to roost in New York. I hear stories about a lot of these open shop buildings, they just don't have people to do it. The quality of the personnel is really poor. And I think my, I have suspect that over the next decade, you're going to see uh, a reversal because I don't think you can, I don't think you can, I mean, New York is a hard place to build. Oh yeah. my goodness. Mm -hmm. And um, really need to know what you're doing. And it is so easy to make a mistake and screw up just because of the difficulty of working in such a dense environment. I think you're going to see that that change. That's what, that would be my prediction. I was reading something last night. I, I mean, I have no idea how it was built, uh, but there was a building that was built in a very unique way. It was almost like, imagine a plus sign for like the first 10 stories because there was another building around this parcel that didn't want to sell. So they had to do this really unique design as they built it. Apparently there was something structurally wrong that found with it that it had to do with wind shear. And so when one of these tropical storms or hurricanes was coming towards it, they said there's like a one in 16 chance that this thing could fall from like wind quartering or something. Wow. And they had to do all these emergency repairs. Again, this is TikTok, so you know, take it for what it is. But, uh, you know, they did all these crazy things and it got fixed. But I mean, it is scary building in the, in the cities. I mean, is there some threshold where there should be more oversight, perhaps not necessarily just done by, you know, union or non-union folks, but is, do we think that there's enough regulation? I hate to say it. Is there enough regulation over some of these builder, bigger buildings? Are you crazy? Yeah. I, I am crazy. <laughs> I know you just get a stamp from a structural engineer, you know, but these things happen. There's a building in uh, California. I think they said it was being built in San Francisco, was it? And it started falling into the, the ground. They had to do all these other emergency repairs. So Maybe these are just one-off things. Yeah, well, BIM and modeling are supposed to solve all that, aren't they? Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> they, uh, I, you want to, you I'll tell you a horror story that for some reason never got much national press. So this is a couple of years ago, the Hard Rock uh, Hotel in New Orleans. You guys yeah. know about that? Oh, oh yeah, the whole up. thing fell. Yeah. The 18-story hotel that imploded. Mm -hmm. And there's a video that one of the workers took. I don't know if you heard about this, of... Uh, the post shores uh, under a deck that had been poured mm -hmm. and they're like bent like a banana mm -hmm. and they're every 20 feet as opposed, you know, so it was clearly just uh, the engineering was stru structural engineering was bad. The design was bad. The project management was bad. But what was really incredible about it was that three people died in it were caught in the implosion as the, the building collapsed and crumbled. And two of them 
were stayed in the building in the wreckage for 10 months. Can you imagine that happening no. in Boston? No. So they all they just the, didn't find all the bodies. The lawyers, was... No, 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 no. They knew exactly where they were. All the lawyers and developers and insurance companies and owners were all pointing fingers at each other for financial and legal liability. And so they were worried about pulling the building completely down because of what it would do to the adjacent uh, structures and buildings. So they just left it there. Oh my God. They left these two guys who were undocumented immigrants. So tells you what the value was put on their lives. Yeah. There for 10 months. I mean, I was actually in New Orleans at that point on a visit. And you walk by the building and you can see tarps and they were covering these, these guys. 10 months. The video is frightening. There's a there's somewhat poor soul who is on sort of the edge as this is happening, try and 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 you just see the whole building come around. Oh, it was awful. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's there's plenty of horror stories in in, uh, in construction. You know, I I actually think that the issue of uh, I don't think the private sector uh, construction market, and this is probably anathema to you guys, is particularly well regulated. I mean, it relies too, way too much on compliance, sort of an honor system of compliance. And for, for most folks, that's fine. But there's always people who are trying to cut corners and, uh, you know, and it's like the New Orleans situation, the price gets paid. Yeah, eventually. I'd like to take a quick break to thank our sponsor, First Boston Capital Partners. David Grossman is a great local lender. If you have a project that you're looking to finance, feel free to reach out to us. We can put you in touch with him. They're fast, they're flexible. They have a lot of options available, both on the debt and equity side. So any financing needs, feel free to reach out. And back to our episode. Can we maybe take a step back and just talk about when union labor is preferred slash used? Is there a size threshold that you typically look at from a uh, you know, uh, an overall, is it a gross square footage standpoint, is a number of units standpoint, you know, and kind of where does that kick in and what kind of, what are the requirements and what's the, typically the process for bidding out a project and kind of how you get involved and what that looks like? So one of the things that I used to do with my folks, we had teams set up all over the six states and we would track, we would use the Dodge uh, reporting system in McGraw-Hill and just track projects as they were coming out of people's heads. For, forget coming out of the ground. By that time, it's too late. Everybody was assigned to contact the owner or developer and just ask them, you know, what they intended to do and to try to and try to develop an amicable working relationship. And and if they uh, didn't necessarily know the contracting community, they, we would suggest people who might be appropriate for that particular niche, if it was in healthcare or hospitality or multi-unit or whatever it happened to be. And we would work closely with our partners in the uh, contracting community. I mean, that's how I always thought of them. Uh, you know, when we came to collective bargaining and negotiations, we would sit across the table and we would all, you know, give each other the hairy eyeball. But basically for 95% of the time we were partners because if they got work, our members worked, and if we advocated for them, they benefited from it. So they, they understood that there was a mutually beneficial relationship. So with respect to which projects, I mean, I mean, we would look at we would try to look at every project, say over 10 million that was listed in Dodge, you know, with their their alphabetical letter mm -hmm. and coordinates. And and it depended. I think uh, residential, we weren't quite as strong in but on a large multi-unit residential, we would do fine. But it really it's largely based on. Does the project, is the project going to require a significant amount of manpower? 
If it does, there aren't that many reliable, competent, responsible non-union contractors who can really perform and really deliver. There are some, no doubt. But if it's a sizable project, they struggle. Uh, they struggle with, with adequate subcontractors and they struggle with their own internal uh, project management groups. On the smaller projects, you can kind of get away with, uh, you know, with less. So you know, we're talking about the nine unit uh, mm -hmm. projects in Boston to avoid the affordable housing uh, uh, obligation. You know, that's usually done non-union. Not uh, sometimes. So, and what we did was um, when at a certain point around the country, it certainly happened in New England, the union, unions back, back in the 50s and 60s used to do a lot of residential work. That was a kind of work we walked away from in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And we made a decision we want to kind of refocus on that work and try to recapture it. So we have a residential rate that's lower than the commercial rate. And we actually have a residential local that's separate. And um, that allowed us to really capture a lot of the multi-unit residential work that we hadn't been uh, in, in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think price is probably the biggest sticking point, right? I mean, it, it seems like there's a big delta or maybe that's just the perception. But have you ever, have you ever had a scenario where they've, the owners have opened up the books and just said, hey, listen, like this is this is where our numbers lie. I mean, it just doesn't work if it's one of those kind of yeah. in-between size projects. No, I mean, we've had ones where, <laughs> I mean, everybody's a little cute with how much they're, the books only get opened up so far, right? Yeah, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I get the, the hairy eyeball comment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you get to page three and then the, then the rest of the, uh, the pages are a little bit less clear. But um, no, yeah, I, I mean, there's no question that, 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 that that's the issue. On the other side, the question is, uh, because schedule is a financial component to it, if you can get done faster, and if you can lease the apartments quicker, then it's worth putting more money up front on the hard costs. So you have really have to look at the totality of it about what, uh, it's not just simply, oh, this guy's getting paid 50 an hour and this guy's getting paid 25 an hour, so it's half the price. It's, it's way more complicated than that. Right, I mean, we've obviously all experienced what happens if you go on like, let's say Craigslist, right? And you can find somebody <laughs> randomly there and you turn on the water and half the toilets start leaking, you know, you, right. you stay away from that just in general. But yeah, no, that was interesting. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Good perspectives. It's definitely true that, you know, I'll use an example on high rise buildings. If you have central cooling systems, showing you cannot find an open shop HVAC company that understands or has experience with that type of work. So there's sort of is a natural size of a project where, you know, you're not even going to, to, to find that labor source. I would say there's one other tipping point. Yeah. When we deal with a lot of institutional work in Boston, because we have all the universities, the colleges and the hospitals, when they build, they typically build for 50 years. When you're dealing with a developer who's planning on flipping it in three or four years, there's a very different attitude about what they bring to the project. Uh, the developer wants to flip it, frankly, doesn't really care. He doesn't want to paint the crack before he flips it. Get but, outside that warranty period, is I yeah, think what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, so. There's also a very different psychology. Like almost all of the institutional work in Boston is done union, even the small stuff, mm -hmm. because they don't want to worry about the quality. They, you know, they don't want to have to. And the places where you really find um, that tug about price is much more on, uh, on the speculative side. Do you think um, the tug is any stronger these days with material costs being what they are? Or does that have a trickle-down effect onto the labor side? Yeah, I, you know, labor costs sort of are 
completely predictable. Everybody knows if it's a three-year contract or a four-year contract, everybody knows what the raises are going to be. Everybody knows exactly what the cost is going to be. Material costs have been so volatile mm -hmm. over the last few years that the problem is that, you know, when I talk to a developer, he tells me, well, this is what the land costs and that the land has gone through the roof. The, I mean, the cost of land, if you look at the last 15 years, cost of land has escalated way faster than any either material or labor costs. Yeah. But he just assumes that's a fixed cost. The cost of the soft costs, the, architect, the architectural engineering costs, that's a fixed cost. You just pay what you pay. And the materials costs are he may not be happy about the volatility, but he pays what he pays. Ah, the labor costs, maybe I can save there. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe, maybe if I use a uh, flooring company that everybody's an independent contractor and everybody gets paid cash, well, you know, that's how I'll make up for all the other costs that I can't control. Yeah. And we've always talked about at some point the land cost has to correct. It just seems like it's gone berserk. So I don't know. We've, yeah. We keep talking. We've talked for years about what's the tipping point? When does this happen? When does that happen? It's just you can't predict it. And now it just seems like inflation in general is here to stay for a little bit. Who knows? I think the only question is, uh, is has the impact of the pandemic mean, mean that the rush to the cities has maybe slowed down a little bit? That, that the, the discovery that you can work remotely and be productive may encourage people to live in North Carolina and work in Boston. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that might be temporary until things yeah. kind of balance out, but you never know. Temporary seems to be good. It's people becoming more permanent every yeah. day. Transitory, <laughs> no longer part of the uh, language. But I think you might, to your point, it, it might not impact you know, you might not see people going to North Carolina, but even some of these smaller tertiary markets, yeah. like within 30 to 45 minutes of Boston, yeah, Fall where, River, New Bedford, yeah. where you can, mm -hmm, you yeah. know, live, your cost of living is cut in half, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. if you only have to come into the city twice a week, maybe you kind of deal with it. I think public policy makes a big difference too. You know, how, how every city has been responding to all of these little mini crises spawned from COVID in general has dictated whether or not the city has come back, flourished or not. So don't want to get political on that. That's obviously a hot button topic. Maybe we can pivot then to um, your current role where you're at the labor and workforce, your, your labor and workforce, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to miss Labor here. and work life program work at life. Harvard. It's, it's part of the Harvard Law School, but don't ever accuse me of being a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Would never do that. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. I appreciate that. Can you tell us a little bit about your current your current role there? And yeah, I mean, I, I, I describe myself as sort of semi-retired. I I, um, uh, I work when I feel like it and, and don't when I don't. Uh, it's, a, it's a very nice deal. I'm, a, I'm, I'm nominally a fellow, and, and my focus has been on kind of what has, some of what I've talked about, what has happened to the industry over the last 40, 50 years. I think it's really, in some ways, in some parts of the country, become degraded, and, and uh, this the, the growth of the the issue of misclassification of taking people who had been treated as employees and treating them as independent contractors is a really critical and very poorly understood aspect of, of the transformation. And uh, so I'll give you the story in a nutshell. Essentially what happened starting in the, in the 70s and 80s, um, there was an effort led by People, everybody's familiar with the Business Roundtable. They're kind of a corporate pu public policy, you know, <laughs> forum. But people don't know they they were formed 
They named themselves the Business Roundtable in 1972. In 1969, the same organization called itself the Construction Anti-Inflation Users Construction Users Anti-Inflation Roundtable, and they were the largest corporations in the country who were tired of the costs of construction escalating. And it was escalating for a whole lot of reasons. There were labor shortages then. That was during the Vietnam War. It was an inflationary period. A lot of young men who might have gone into construction went to Vietnam instead. So labor costs were going up. All the costs were going up, and they wanted to put a lid. And they came together and sort of developed this whole proposal about how to transform the industry. And one of the things, and Mark, you will appreciate this as having, having worked for Suffolk, one of the things that they proposed was a shift from being general contractors and self-performed to being construction managers, because mm. they felt that was a way for the owners to have a better, have more commonality with the, the construction manager who was more the owner's voice on the job site, as opposed to general contractor who more was aligned with the subs than with the workers, actually. So it was a very interesting uh, kind of uh, transition in the industry. And that's what started. But the other thing that happened is that some people got the smart idea that if I, if I take my crew of drywallers who are all working for me and have been working for me for years as employees until Friday and Monday, I'm going to make them all independent contractors. And suddenly, no longer, they're doing exactly the same thing. Uh, that they did. And I have them sign a paper saying they're independent contractors. And what that does is means they don't have to pay any federal uh, taxes, any state taxes, unemployment, income taxes, and I don't have to pay any workers' compensation mm. premiums, which as you know, in construction are very high because yeah. it's a dangerous industry. So you could save immediately about 25 to 30% in labor costs. Well, construction is a very competitive industry. And if people could do that, suddenly you became far more competitive because the materials didn't change. So suddenly your labor costs but the same people, the same level of productivity dropped dramatically. So this became, I would say, an epidemic during the 80s and 90s to the point that in certain parts of the country, it became the rule. And then what happened on top of that was the rise of immigration and the, the growth of the Latino workforce in construction. And then and those folks, because they were vulnerable uh, in terms of citizenship status, just said, forget it, I'm not gonna bother with the paperwork and making them independent contractors, I'm just gonna pay them cash, which is even better. Then I get labor brokers and I get multi-tier subcontracting and this whole, and there was, there's always been cash payments around. Like if someone comes in and builds your deck, maybe you pay them in cash, right? Maybe they get cash, but we're not, I'm talking about multi-million dollar projects, high-rise projects. You go throughout the South today in Charlotte, Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, big, the big cities, the big skyscrapers, you will find that large part portions of the crew are either independent contractors or getting paid in cash. Hmm. So what has that done to the industry? Well, it decimated it. And it's meant that that whole, I started out talking that pathway for folks into the middle class that the building trades always represented essentially has disappeared in, in large part in large swaths of the country. So that's my research has been about that. I'm writing about that. I'm teaching. Um, uh, and mostly I'm not working too hard. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Very nice. What are, what are some thoughts on kind of to that end, right? So almost the outsourcing of construction where we haven't really seen it in the city and, and we, we think it's mostly logistical, but you've seen it elsewhere in that outskirt area, whether it's prefabbed panels or modularized yeah. construction. And now we're starting to see 3D printed homes. I mean, what are just sort of the overall thoughts on on those and how it may impact the industry? So I'm sure you you guys follow the industry press to some degree. And you know, 
there's all these sort of tech evangelists, right? Mm. Oh my God, we cracked the code. You know, now we, we figured out how to do modular, you know, and it's not your, your grandpa's trailer home, right? This is the real thing. And, and I've been to some of those factories and I will tell you, they range the spectrum like anything else in construction from just building under a roof and it's no different to like really sophisticated auto automated plants. There've been all these recent spectacular failures the Atlantic Yards in New York, mm -hmm. you probably read about yeah. it, you know, so $6 billion, Yards, the, yeah. the, the Forest City, the developer, mm -hmm. he, uh, he um, joined venture with Skanska and they had the Brooklyn Navy Yards where they had this uh, 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 unionized uh, warehouse factory where they were going to produce my 50 story modular uh, buildings. And, you know, the first one that goes up, everything leaks it's months and months and months late. And the whole thing is screwed up immediately for city and Skanska start suing each other. The whole thing is a you know calamity. And um, and now Mr. Ratner for Forest City is a philanthropist and has left the industry. So and then Sorry, there's I didn't hear that correlation. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's Katera. Yeah, gone. Which was all these these Silicon Valley brilliant uh, geeks were gonna come in and show this uh, stupid people in construction how to really do it right. And they're gone. So the ones that have worked are the ones that are kind of people with experience and focusing on a niche. One of the ones that I visited that is uh, most impressive is in out in Vallejo in the East Bay, across the bay from San Francisco called Factory OS. They took over uh, like three football field size shop that, from a decommissioned naval shipyard. They got stationed, they, they do volumetric boxes. And, mm -hmm. and not only is everything finished. Uh, there's even fixtures and appliances often in them and they do housing. But the guy, the one of the, the partners who did it, uh, used to do housing conventionally. So they made the transition. So they understood the market. One of them was a contractor. One of them was a developer. The contractor was union. The shop was union. The carpenters actually represent the workers inside the, the shop. They now have 500 people working for them. They want to do a plant in Southern California. And housing shortage is extreme in the Bay Area. So they have no problem with demand going out the door. They didn't tell the world that they were disruptive and that they were going to transform. The, they just went and built, mm -hmm. you know, housing. And I think that uh, those ones are the ones that are working. Certainly offsite production prefabrication is happening and will mm -hmm. continue. I don't know if you've been to Canestrero's shop in the seaport, but uh, he built a, a big warehouse where he now has all of his people working prefab like they they'll do head walls uh, for patients rooms in a hospital mm -hmm. where you have all kind of complicated medical gas lines and wiring and everything so they'll just uh drywall company will come in and start up the walls the plumbers will will, will do their thing the, the pipefitters will do their thing the electricians will do their thing they shrink wrap it and send it off to the uh, site that happened over at bmc um it's, it's happening in other places as well you're going to see a lot more of that yeah that's cool I agree with you about finding that sweet spot. And there there are technologies certainly that are productive and have a future. And then there's other things that I kind of roll my eyes and quickly say, you've clearly never built a built a building. Yeah. Have you seen so, that house that you can build by, you order the kit, it's just like giant adult Legos. You put yeah. it together like that. I mean, the funny part is it started in the 1950s, like Sears and Roebuck Company was that kit. It ordered earlier, your house. Earlier than that, it earlier. started in 1908. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. in some ways, this is, and uh, Walter Gropius, the famous architect, mm -hmm. was uh, writing in the 1920s about how industrialized housing was going to take over within a matter of years. So this is, I mean, if I sound a little cynical about it, I am a little cynical <laughs> about it. I, 
I, you know, I just, anytime someone tells you that they're going to change, you know, change the industry, I kind of roll my eyes and okay, there's a reason why people have been doing it the way they've been doing it for a long time. It's not just because they're stupid mm -hmm. and backward dinosaurs. It's because it actually makes sense. There's so many variables. That's the other thing that I think people fail to consider is that every plot of land is rectangular, flat, and has good bearing and has <coughs> open space around it. You know, there's dense urban infill. There's we could go on and yeah. on and on, and that's the that's well. The, I, the, the one thing I would the one limitation about modular. I mean, maybe it's you know may, may not be a trailer park anymore, but the truth <laughs> is it only works when there's a repetitive design. Mm -hmm. It only works for like college dormitories where every single dorm room is the same, hotels mm -hmm. where every single hotel room is the same, or, or, uh, or um, you know, other forms of repetitive design. If you want something that, that's gonna have a lot of discrete different design elements, it just doesn't work because every time you have to reprogram and reset it up and, and at that time it's actually, yeah, the truth is, by the way, that for all of the, seemingly obvious things about modular that it should be cheaper it's not right you you may save on schedule you save on schedule yeah mm -hmm. so i guess we're, we're sort of coming up on time i was wondering if you could bring us back you've been uh been around in, in the union since 1975 i'm sure it's changed and don't evolved. say i'm old i'm just saying it's like yeah you know it, it, i'm sure it has changed many times can you give us some stories uh anything you can share now that you're not in an official capacity any good <laughs> It is uh, not my grandpa's union, that, uh, that's mm -hmm. for sure. Um, I think one of the things that I'm proudest of during my tenure is that the workforce has become a lot more diverse. When I joined the union, it was a white boys union, mm -hmm. no doubt. I would say there's still, all the unions have a long way to go around, the whole industry has a long way to go around that, but it looks completely different than it did uh, when I started. And so that's maybe the most dramatic change that has happened. But I think there's a, there's also there used to be some rough and tumble stuff going oh, yeah. on and uh, oh and yeah that's oh, sort no. of... oh well I mean when I ran for office the first thing that uh, me and my partner did and this is in '92 mm -hmm. when we won was we banned alcohol to meetings and you know what that may sound like a little thing it was not a little thing okay. it changed the meetings from being anything could happen yeah. at any given moment to like okay let's have a conversation about what's going on in the industry that's good. So that's good. Nice. Awesome. Should we do a quick, quick game of uh, overrated, overrated, underrated, underrated? <laughs> throw some topics out and see what your thoughts are? Or... I think we can wrap here. I just, I, right. don't, I don't know too many labor related ones. It would be interesting. We typically have this game. We throw out a concept, a term, and tell us if it's overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. But we're usually talking about Hardy Plank siding or <laughs> Juliet Balconies. When it comes to modular, the word yeah. disruption is yeah. overrated. Overrated. There you go. <laughs> well, I was thinking like 3D printed homes. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah overrated. You know, mass, yeah. mass timber construction. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, I kind of like, like mass timber, actually. Underrated. Yeah. We'll do an unofficial one. Just throw some things out there. Yeah, <laughs> okay. cool. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks for everyone for listening, rating, reviewing, and uh, for sharing the podcast with a friend. See you on the next one. Cheers. Happy holidays. <laughs>